Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Rachel Max. Rachel started off her career as an academic scientist. In 2000, she began to volunteer at her local humane society, and one thing led to another, and she's been involved in animal welfare ever since. After attending a How to Start Your Own Animal Sanctuary workshop at Best Friends Animal Society with her mother in 2006, the path was set. The two founded Here Today, Adopted Tomorrow Together in 2012, Rachel brings a scientist's eye to the day-to-day work and long-term planning of Here Today. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stacey. It's great to talk with you today. Um, I was wondering if you could um, go into a little bit greater greater detail to let us know how did you get started in this business? Um, well, as, as you said, I was sort of in academics. So I was actually studying fishes, um, doing kind of international stuff, looking at long-term questions. And then I kind of realized that the stuff I was doing, volunteering at my local humane society was much more interesting to me, was really more what I wanted to be doing with my life. I wanted to be working with animals much more than I wanted to be doing anything else I was doing. And my mom and I had been talking while I was working at my local humane society. She had been fostering dogs in her own house. And we sort of got together and we thought, you know, we'd really like to do our own thing and we'd really like to do this. I didn't like what I was seeing at my local humane society and I thought, you know, I can do this better. And so we, we did, we got, we went to the best friends, how to start your own animal workshop. And like I said, one thing led to another uh, and we opened our own place. Uh, here today, adopted tomorrow. And I started asking around, what are the big problems in the area? What do we need to solve? And everyone kept telling us there's so many cats. We need to do something with the cats. And then I started getting into trap new to return. And I'm still there, <laughs> trying to decrease the number of cats coming into our shelter and do something that way. And that's how I got into community cats. And when you first started, um, obviously, you got support from um, best friends. Were there any other organizations that you turned to for help when you first started up? Um, best friends is sort of what taught me a lot of stuff. Uh, my mother obviously helped with you know, she bought the property that we're on. Uh, MRFRS, Merrimack, and you uh, helped me and learn, you know, how to write some of the grants uh, and PetSmart charities. I learned how to trap actually from another local organization here, Community Cat Connection, when I started asking around uh, what needed to be done. Some of the local People here taught me how to trap. I didn't know how to trap until I got out here. That wasn't my primary interest until I saw that's what needed to be done. Um, everyone, I literally go to everyone I see. <laughs> uh, animal control officers didn't know how to trap so much as they knew that was a big issue out here. I went to Tufts. There's a group Bay Worcester out here, and they offer free clinics on Saturdays or on Sundays to feral cats. 
Um, I basically asked anyone and everyone. I went to every place, every shelter around here, saw what their programs were and what they had. I, there's basically nobody I didn't nobody I didn't ask. Right. And you're actually you are located in Massachusetts, but you're not near Boston. What describe sort of the community that here today is located in? Um, our town is Brimfield, uh, and the one thing we're known for is we have the largest outdoor antique fair. Depending on who you ask, it's on the East Coast, in the U.S., in the world, but that's basically all we've got. It's semi-rural, semi-towns. We don't have a lot of, a lot, a lot of people don't have computers or only have cell phones or it's not a, ta- it's not a city. We have towns, we have selectmen. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's not really big industry out here. It's, it is the most rural place I've ever lived in my life. I came from college towns, living in academics. So a lot of stuff doesn't work out here the way it worked when I lived in the big, in <laughs> what I think of as normal America, but it's more like, you know, it's more rural than most people have lived in. It's not like Julie Jacobson, who I know you had on earlier. It's not like her stuff, but it's it's pretty rural out here. <laughs> so it's not it's not a city. <laughs> Do you find areas though um, where there's pockets of poverty, um, and those are areas that you need to focus on with your yeah, TNR programs? Yeah, a higher poverty level. We have lower, much lower income than most of Massachusetts, but for some reason the the spay neuter costs are very high. I was just asking around. Uh, I mean, there's lots of vets in the area that aren't too far away, but the I was amazed when I moved out here how much it costs to go to the vet. I was just asking somebody, and to spay a cat costs almost $400. But, you know, in some of my towns, I have like a 15% poverty rate. And I can't imagine, I mean, I wouldn't pay $500, you know, $400 to spay a cat. <laughs> so... I don't know how you can expect these people to pay that much to spay a cat. Um, the nearest open admission, the nearest shelter before I moved in here was a half hour away. And I have a lot of people who won't drive on the highway, but even if they have a car, they don't drive on the highway. So it's, and there are no open, the nearest open admission shelter is further away than that. The animal control is not responsible for cats. So I'm left in this situation where the cats are just the ignored animal out here. So it just sort of sets up the whole scenario where cats are just sort of left to fend for themselves and nobody's responsible for them. So there was just a big issue of cats. I guess we call them free roaming cats that nobody's looking after and everybody thinks is an issue, but nobody wants to do anything. So just even, you know, I had to sort of step up to the plate and start doing something to try and reduce the population and reduce the numbers coming into shelters. Because the only answer that I had heard of before this in this area, and the only way you could get anyone to do anything was through euthanasia. And they, there still are a lot of people here that believe euthanasia is the answer. And I, you know, I don't agree, obviously. <laughs> So there's a lot of advocacy and convincing that you continually have to do in order to get the community on board to continue to to support um, progressive community cat programs. Yeah, and I'm still doing that. A lot of people think I'm a pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) You're just a solid advocate. Can you describe to me a little bit about uh, here today and what it's like to be um, a cat in your program? 
Yeah, we are um, a cage-free, a cageless shelter, and that was definitely a firm thing that we went in wanting to build. I mean, as I said, I got my training at, at Best Friends, which is a huge cage-free sanctuary uh, in Utah. And that was the first time I had ever seen anything like that. They might be one of the oldest places in the U.S. like that, and definitely one of the largest places. And they have cage-free dogs and cage-free cats. And it was absolutely amazing to me when I saw this coming from a traditional shelter where all the cats and all the dogs are pretty much alone in cages. And I saw, you know, upper respiratory rampant in, in a traditional shelters and cats being euthanized for having upper respiratory and calling them sick, you know, instead of giving them medication and dogs, you know, who'd been there too long and getting stressed out and, and things like that. And to me, when I then go and see cats living in colonies and groups and being completely healthy and dogs living in groups of, you know, and being healthy and not, you know, getting sort of cage rage, as we call it, or, you know, going a little wacky was amazing to me. And I wanted to take that and build something like that where animals could stay, be healthy while they stayed and people could interact with them. Um, so I started to visit a lot of different shelters and see what people had done and how the animals uh, responded to the situations. And I became a very firm believer that by not living in cages, the animals stayed healthier. By living in groups, and I actually studied this, the, the animals stayed healthier because they don't get as stressed out. And I built my entire shelter around this principle that they live more comfortably in groups and it's less stressful and that you don't see as much illness. And that's exactly what happened. They, we are completely cage-free and the animals are much less stressed and they're much less healthy, they're much healthier and we're able to adopt out cats that just don't do well in traditional shelters. We're able to work with shy and fearful cats that would never get adopted in some of the traditional cage shelters. So, and we just don't see things like upper respiratory take over a whole room full of cats, which is wonderful to me. That's exactly what my goal is and was, you know, in building this place. So I, I love it. So in your cage-free environment, you know, how many cats would you have in one room? Uh, right now we keep, we have like one big room because we're a pretty small place. And I don't keep more than 15, 20 is the most, because I have a very large room and that that's pretty much what I keep. Um, I One of the early talks I went to said, it was very interesting that the more cats, the more animals you keep, the less animals you, you get adopted, <laughs> which I found amazing. That's very counterintuitive. <laughs> I guess there was a study based on cereal or something like that. And I pretty much have taken that to heart and try not to get more than that in any one setting. And I also, if you get too many cats, it goes the other way. They get very stressed out. So we try not to hit too too much above that. And then the animals seem to move at you know a decent rate. But people get way overwhelmed if there's just too many animals and they can't choose and they walk out with getting no cats. Interesting. So there's a, um, a good number, right? You said about 15 to 20 um, cats or else if you have more than that in the space, then people just get overwhelmed by the different choices and they get confused and basically leave. That's sort of what you're saying. Right, well, based on the size of, of mine, because there's definitely some that are, you know, shyer and hide 
and then there's a certain number that come out and greet them. So it depends on, you know, the, the people. And then people will walk in with, that have certain requirements, you know, and there's always a certain number that don't fit. Like some will have children and a certain number can't be with children. Some will, will want, you know, X or Y and certain things cats won't fit in their house. So, you know, you whittle it down that way. Um, so yeah, you always need some, but not all the cats will fit based on their requirements. At the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, we did an exit survey one year of, of our adopters, and one of the questions was we asked them how many cats had you uh, looked at or you know visited with before you made a decision, um, and the selection was between three and five cats. Yep, I believe it. Most people don't see all the cats. They just sort of beeline over. And then there's a few that will... I've noticed that, that if you interrupt them and you introduce them to every single cat, they get confused and walk out with nothing. So I usually just sort of let them do their own thing um, and try not to interrupt them, make sure they make their own match uh, and as long as it works. And then there's also, there's sort of a critical number too, whereas if you get too low, the cats don't like it either. They get too defensive of their own space. (laughs) How many of the cats that you have in your facility are owner surrenders versus um, strays or community cats? It, usually most of the time, I tend to go with more, uh, commu- more I guess, free roaming cats or more strays uh, just because no one is looking out for them and we have a big sort of trap neuter return program. And I'll often refer for a lot of the owner surrenders to some of the bigger shelters. Um, in the winter, we do get more owner surrenders just because less cats are on the street <laughs> or vis- less cats are visible. Um, and, and that's, I seem to have more open space for the owner surrenders depending on how, how much, how big I guess my TNR program is at the time. <laughs> but usually I do have more, more of the strays coming in. Um, than than owner surrenders when i look at my numbers i don't have my numbers in front of me but i do notice there's a lot more strays in my program than owner surrenders and now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid but no one wants to play hide and seek with their trap Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night, with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash Reveal Wild. Since uh, 2006 to now, have you noticed um, a drop in like the number of kittens that you've dealt with on an annual basis or noticed a drop in the number of requests for help? Um, well, I have only, we only started in 2000. We opened our building in December of 2012. Um, I'd say my TNR program really got going in 2014. So I'm not quite you know, looking at those numbers yet because we're still gaining popularity. But what I do notice is if I like I hit an area really hard, I hit the town of Palmer really hard one year and sort of ignored a little another part of my service area because I thought, you know, the town of Sturbridge. And then suddenly the next year, I hardly saw any kittens in the town of Palmer. But the town of Sturbridge is where every single one of my kittens came from, practically, except for maybe one or two litters. So I do notice things like that. <laughs> so um, that's good to know, because if there is a sort of contentious situation, 
going on to such a point where um, a group is forced to sort of leave an area and stop their TNR, you know, activities, then that, you know, governing body who might be enforcing this should be prepared to see an uptick in cats in that area if there isn't any active spay neuter. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying really hard to get the government, get the town governments behind me. And it's, it's hard because they just don't have the funding um, to do these kinds of things. And they, they still kind of think I'm a little bit of a pain because, <laughs> you know, the residents complain here and there. And anytime a cat goes missing, it's, it's my fault. <laughs> I mean, we're experiencing a lot of the new organization problems. <laughs> so that's communication um, and building relationships. And yep. Yeah, we're doing our best to do these kinds of things. and <laughs> It takes time. And I know when you're a small organization, time is usually not something that's very much available. Um, and it's hard to manage. But it's also very important to establish those relationships because if you don't have them, then there's a level of trust that sometimes doesn't exist either. And you want those governing folks to you know, be able to refer people to you to be able to help, which I know then adds to your list of things that you need to do, but yet it's pro it's the best course of action. Right. It sort of seems like the squeaky wheel, you know, gets the oil. Yeah. Because while there's so many people that are happy with what we're doing and are on board, there's one or two that are a little louder <laughs> that don't like what we do and complain very loudly. Yeah. And I think though, with enough education um, and enough sympathy for those people to be able to say, hey, we're listening to what you're talking about. And and at the end of the day, usually our objectives are the same, which is we want every cat to have a guardian or a home and to have, uh, you know, to be cared for, to be spayed or neutered. And TNR can only make a colony size go down. It's not going to make, a, to TNR a colony or to spay, neuter a colony is not going to make the colony get any bigger and so, you know, we're all on the same page with regards to the objectives and, you know, we, I have seen trap, neuter, euthanize, I mean, not trap, neuter, euthanize, trap and euthanize, um, you know, and it's not, not a successful option at all because unfortunately cat overpopulation is a human problem, um, with us basically abandoning cats, it starts with abandonment. And until we can address that social service issue of cat abandonment, then we have to have reactive TNR in place. Yeah, that's still, I still am sort of having some issues communicating that and getting them to see things like that. You know, the more numbers I get and I'm able to show people these things that it's a little harder. They still want to be a little reactive to things. So it's, you know, we're getting there. And Showing them other towns is harder to convince. They they want to see in their towns, but they so we're getting there. Right, it is. A, it's a slow process, and and sometimes you can never win people over, and then that's when you like you bribe them with brownies or something, whatever right. their favorite food is. You bring that <laughs> along, and you know you. It's nice to show them the money that I've spent in their town. They like that, and then when I offer a low cost bay neuter and the public lines up, they like that. <laughs> so great. So they see what, you know, what services you're providing and that's not, you know, that's not funded by, you know, any public, public monies. Um, the, you know, in Massachusetts, we do have 
um, a checkoff on the tax returns, the Mass Animal Fund, and then we also have um, our spay-neuter license plate. And so those are sort of two ways for nonprofits to get access to, I guess I would call them kind of quasi-public-private funding sources, but from an individual local town, it's very rare to get any funding. Um, at least in Massachusetts. Um, in terms of your, you have been with me in the mentoring program. Um, you did the mentoring program when we had a grant with the PetSmart charities. What was, uh, how did that experience help you? Uh, that was great. It really helped me learn to organize and divvy up tasks uh, and reach out more for help. It was before I got into that it was sort of more me myself trying to do a lot of stuff um, that helped me sort of get a team on board hand out some responsibilities and get that and realize that sometimes i have to be the one i who tells other people what to do and instead of being the one out in the field all the time responding to everything so I, I can't always be the one doing all the field work. I can't respond to every person, but I can push it down the chain. I, there's other people who want to do those kinds of things, so I can just be in that kind of position and you know, organize a team, which is sometimes the thing that's needed the most, because uh, not everyone can do that. And uh, creating a team is, I would say, very critical uh, for success, for support, um, for any organization, you're, you're not going to be able to do it alone. If you think you're going to create something, a nonprofit, a, you know, an a adoption center, a trap new to return program, you're not going to be doing it alone. You have the obligations of having a board of directors as well as having a volunteer corps. Uh, we had over 350 volunteers at the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, which that's been over, you know, 20 years in development. But I have to stress that as an organization grows, it's important to have, even if you do have staff on board, it's really important to have a large volunteer corps helping you out and providing different sources of skills and perspectives. It helps an organization grow and stay, stay fresh, you know, stay fresh with new ideas. Yeah, no, that's, that's been really important. And I sort of take that into every aspect of things. Now I sort of delegate a lot because I do a lot myself, but if I didn't delegate, I don't think I would get any sleep at all. <laughs> well, and you would burn out. And, you know, burnout is something that happens very regularly in this business between that and compassion fatigue. It's a very, can be a very emotional business too. And um, so we have to be very sensitive to those components. Um, and, you know, we are not able to be available 24 seven. Um, we would like to feel we can, we want our programs to be available in that way, but, um, it's just not possible with, with one person. Rachel, if people are interested in finding out more, um, about here today, or even having a visit to see what your cageless facility is like, how can they find you? Um, we're online at heretodaysanctuary.org. Um, Facebook is the same thing here here today, Sanctuary. Uh, you can email us. Um, our general email is smudge at heretodaysanctuary.org or me, 
R-A-C-H-A-E-L at heretodaysanctuary.org. And we just started an Instagram account, which is actually Here Today Adopted Tomorrow. I think that's, and we are located in Brimfield and our address is everywhere. Um, so you can look online for our open hours or give us a call, 413-324-8224 and make an appointment to come visit. So when love to show people around. Yeah, so when folks are all going to the Brimfield world's largest flea market, they should swing down and visit you. Oh yeah. Come down and visit. We're usually here. <laughs> then too. My mother is out in the flea market getting donations. That's one of our biggest fundraisers. So you'll see my mom and other volunteers in town. <laughs> my uh, son is a big flea market fan and he knows of the Brim Brimfield flea market. And he, I don't, I don't do flea markets, but he's always advocating and lobbying that we go to it. Oh yeah, there's lots of antiques. My father-in-law used to sell here before we even moved out here. My my father-in-law did this for years. <laughs> so right. people love it. Yeah. Is there, Rachel, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, say goodbye? Uh, I guess the biggest thing is, you know, don't be afraid to ask complete strangers that do stuff that you want to do for help. And the other big thing is that I've learned is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> There's tons of things that other people do out there that I like, that I just look at what they're doing and I do exactly the same thing. So <laughs> those are the biggest things. I, I basically have been to so many other people and cold called or cold emailed other people that are doing things I like and found wonderful people that can help me out. Rachel, that's great. It's a great way to close up the show. You know, make sure you ask for help and, and look for other other programs to benchmark or other people to uh, benchmark the great work that they're doing. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. And I look forward to having you back on soon. Well, thanks for having me, Stacy. Thanks for listening to the Community Cats podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone.